Hello and welcome to yet another insightful episode of the Digital Adoption Show, the podcast that explores the ever-evolving landscape of work and technology. In this episode, we delve deep into the crucial role of neuroscience and adaptive learning in successful change management. As organizations worldwide embrace the digital age, adapting to new technologies and workflows has become essential for survival. But how does we make sure that this transition is not only smooth, but also empowering for teams and individuals? The answer lies in understanding the intricacies of the human brain and the power of adaptive learning. Whether you're a CTO seeking to revolutionize your organization's technology stack, an HR manager tasked with upskilling your workforce, or simply someone interested in the future of work, the Digital Adoption Show is your go-to resource. So grab your headphones and get ready to explore the fascinating intersection of brain science, adaptive learning, and change management in the digital age. Subscribe to the Digital Adoption Show now so you never miss an episode. Our two guests on today's podcast are Dr. Britt Andrietta and Kelly Power. They'll share their insights, experiences, and practical strategies for harnessing the brain's potential to accelerate digital adoption and transform the way we work. Dr. Britt Andrietta, the CEO and President at Seventh Mind and also former Chief Learning Officer at Lynda.com. With over 30 years of experience, Dr. Britt Andrietta is an internationally recognized thought leader who creates brain science-based solutions for today's challenges. Currently at Seventh Mind, Britt has been drawing on her unique background in leadership, neuroscience, psychology, and learning to unlock the best in people and organizations. When asked to elaborate on the theme of brain science, as most of her talks and books mention this term, she had a very interesting analogy to explain. She also talks about how the mind adapts to any new concept, taking the example of digital adoption for this podcast, She introduces the term biology of resistance and explains why leaders need to be aware about it. You know, through all of my talks, you're going to find the the theme of brain science. And the one thing I say in every talk and every book is if you remember nothing else, remember this about humans. We're wired to do three things, survive, belong, and become. So let me tell you a little bit more about each of those. Survival is what you think it is, right? It's our need for food, water, shelter. And when people are going through a situation like a hurricane or a geopolitical strife of some kind, you'll see how much that becomes so pressing for people to to find the basic needs of survival. But for most of us, we have jobs, our lives are pretty good. So how survival shows up is in performance reviews or when we're getting feedback from our boss because our paycheck is how we buy food, water, shelter. So organizations can actually kind of stir up people's survival stuff anything that has to do with your ability to keep a job, move ahead, get opportunities professionally, that's gonna hit survival. Our next core need is to belong. And this is because we're very much a tribal species and it's because it's tied to survival. We were much more likely to survive back in the day and even today by living in groups and looking out for each other. And if we were ousted from a group, we were much more likely to be killed by a lion or something else on the, you know, wherever we lived in the world. 
And so entire components of our biology are dedicated to helping us know how to read emotion in others, how to collaborate with others, and also how to sense when we're being excluded because that's going to put us more in danger of being ousted by the tribe and then not surviving. And then finally is our need to become our best selves. It's, it's probably our deepest need. We are a species of seekers that is always seeking to grow and improve. You know, when we achieve something, we celebrate for a minute and then we create a whole new goal. So becoming our best selves is tied to our need to learn and grow and be our best, whatever that looks like. And so what's funny is when I, want, or when I work with organizations, they're like, yeah, we want everyone to show up their best selves and do their best work. And I'm like, great, then stop reorging them every six months, you know, do performance reviews differently. You're triggering all their survival and belonging stuff and you can't get them there to that higher level state if you're not paying attention to what you're doing on those other levels. And any digital adoption is a form of change, right? And change, our body sees change first as potential danger. And then when we get enough information and we can see that there's going to be an opportunity where I might gain something as opposed to lose something that matters to me, then we can settle down and get on board with the change. But at first, biologically, we're wired to do a lot of resistance to change. And I think leaders get surprised by this and, and they expect everyone to be super excited when they announce the new digital adoption, for example, and everyone starts complaining. But it, they're just being human. They're just being normal. Eventually, they'll settle down and get on board with it. But as a leader, if you understand the biology of resistance, you can, first of all, be prepared for it. And second of all, you can do a lot to lessen it or shorten it. You cannot make it go away entirely because it is a biological process. But you can do a lot to make it easier for people to get on board with change. And so a lot of my change solutions, for example, really help leaders think through and prepare and, and give them strategies for helping people move through the inevitable resistance faster and get on board and, and adapted to the change faster. When asked how her three-phase model compares to concepts like learning by doing, which is something Vortex follows, she draws similarities and comparisons from the perspective of businesses and the modern workplace. Well, you know, I'm looking at, so my model, you know, the three-phase model of learning is when we look at all the brain science of how the brain actually learns. If you think about it, you know, learning happens first by we have to take that information in. So the first phase is learn. And however that goes, whether it's done well or it's done poorly, it's how the information first comes into our brain. The second phase is remember. So if that learning doesn't get pushed into long-term memory so we can access it for weeks or years to come, that learning is a waste of time. It, it's like it didn't even happen. So we also have to think about, can we design learning events so that they actually go into memory better? And do they get, are they stickier? Are they there to be recalled when needed? And then finally, most professional learning has to do with behavior change. So, you know, I'm really focused on the kind of learning that happens in our workplaces. And there's really no learning that we roll out where we're not trying to get someone to do something differently, either be a better manager, use software differently. So inevitably, when you're changing behavior, we're talking about changing habits. And it's really thinking about what are the words and actions you want to see people doing and making sure your learning event is truly getting them on a path to do that in the way that you want. There's a, what I see in a lot of learning events is a disconnect. There'll be a great event, but it's not really driving behavior change. 
or they're going after specific behavior change, but they're not actually giving people the right tools to, to ultimately do it successfully. So my goal is to kind of help learn, you know, people who design learning events for others to really get clear. But you're absolutely right. In professional learning, a big part of, of how we learn is by doing it. And we can't get around that. You can sit in a room and listen to information until you're blue in the face, but unless you get up and start doing it, you have not yet formed a neural pathway in your own body. And that's how we get people to true behavior change. She then talks about the best ways to adopt this form of learning. We asked her about the best practices to follow during the design and effective delivery of these modules. Yeah. So again, you know, good learning aligns with how the brain naturally learns. Our, our brain is a learning machine. It's, it's how we move through the world and it has been for eons <laughs> since human first started walking around. So it's really about aligning with that. So things like our attention span wanes after 20 minutes. So why fight that? Try to build your learning into chunks of 15 to 20 minute segments followed by a processing activity that not only drives behavior change, but also then pushes that learning into memory. You know, learning is longer lasting if you can attach it to something that the learning, the learner already knows. Scientists call these schemas. So what you want to do is think about how can I attach this new thing I want them to know to something that they're already doing that they're already aware of. So I use a lot of metaphors. For example, my, my change training is built around the metaphor of hiking or mountain climbing. Because even if you've never done it, you know what it is. So then I kind of attach everything to this schema in their brain that, that I know everyone in the room already has some familiarity with. And then finally, you know, if we want to change behavior, we have to give people time to practice. It takes 40 to 50 repetitions of the behavior to form a habit in the brain. And yet most learning events don't even involve any practice, let, enough, let alone enough practice. So I'm encouraging my tribe to start really shifting how you think about learning so that you know maybe people get the information in a pre-learning event and then you spend the time in the room having them actually do it five, six, ten times. And this is especially true with digital adoption. You know, give people the opportunity to, to wire that new behavior. Um, it'll make the, the whole transition go faster and better if you're helping them get there. She goes on to define the metrics that define the success of executing such a model. The thing that I would change, though, is you should actually be figuring this out before you build your learning solution. So if you first need to identify what are the behaviors I'm trying to change and how do we measure those, because then that'll help you build the right learning solution. But after you build it, then you got to go and track it. So for me, I like to use the Jack Phillips model. It's, it's a version of the Kirkpatrick model of evaluation, but there's five levels of evaluation. The most basic level most people do this is just satisfaction. You know, did learners like the program? So did they, you know, did they enjoy it? And that's useful. You know, we want them to enjoy it. But if, if that's all that happens, it wasn't worth your time. The next level is learning. So that's really looking at did they understand what they were being taught? And you can only get at this through some assessment of some kind, you know, where you either ask them or you test their knowledge in some way. The third level is implementation. And this means they took the learning and they started deploying it on the job. So we want to see that, that transfer of knowledge from being a mental exercise to actually changing what they're doing on the job. So you've got to be able to look for signs of that. The next is impact. 
And so ultimately learning has a goal. It's usually trying to increase something or decrease something. So you might be wanting your team to get to market faster, or you want people to make fewer errors, or you want managers to get higher engagement scores, right? There's something that you're tracking. So the fourth level is impacts. Did the learning change the behavior? And are you seeing the, the needle move on the data, whatever data you're tracking? And then finally, the last level is ROI, or return on investment, which is did the investment you made in the learning pay off by generating more benefit than it cost? So if you spent $10,000 on the learning solution, but it made managers better, and therefore you saw less you know, attrition of some of your top talent, which you can measure in some kind of dollar way, then yes, it paid for itself. And if you're not able to, you know, as a learning designer, if you're not able to think through those five levels and, and think about how you're going to show the benefit of your work, but more importantly, use that data to help you build the right solution, then you're probably gonna have a learning event that maybe people liked, but didn't really make a difference. And I always want, if we're gonna take people and put them through a learning event, I wanna make sure that they got a lot out of it and it made a difference. After discussing the concept of biology of resistance, she sheds light on how managers today can get their employees excited for any change in the system. You know, it's a little bit of a different issue. So let's say a change is announced and the manager has to get their team on board with it. You know, it's a couple things. It's, it's first of all, preparing yourself, knowing that there is going to be resistance, even if you do an awesome job. It's just a biological process. But part of it is, is letting people move their, through, through their own concerns about what they're going to lose and then continually telling them what the opportunities are, showing them what they could gain, giving them the why of the change, breaking it into manageable steps, and then you know, marking and celebrating progress along the way. There's a lot that managers can do to really help engage people in change and get them excited about it and, and doing it in a really wonderful way. Lastly, she opens up about the difficulties and challenges that she faced during adoption of new technology and gives some insightful advice on how to tackle them. Absolutely. I think it's really important to do your homework. Some solutions are best suited to certain conditions or even organization size. So you don't always discover that when you're, when you're first looking at something. So you really got to do your homework and find out does this really work in the long run, right? Or behind the scenes. You also need to consider how various things need to play together and be sure to explore compatibility. Because sometimes one solution, while it looks great and it seems to have all the bells and whistles, it actually doesn't play with another core part of your business or another system that it needs to. And then, you know, I love salespeople, God bless them. But of course they're in the business of saying, yes, everything is perfect. Our, our thing is gonna be the perfect thing for you. But you really need to double check that yourself. So do thorough reference checks to make sure that the organization you're hiring has successfully done what they're bidding for you. Because sometimes they'll say, oh yeah, we've done that, but they haven't really. Insist on speaking to some of their customers. Make sure you, you really vet them. And also ask the tough questions when you're talking to those customers. Like, how did it really go? Were there any problems along the way? Did you feel really like they had the expertise needed to help you through this? Were there any problems that showed up later? You know, those kinds of questions. Because oftentimes people 
will only tell you the bad stuff if you ask for it directly. Otherwise, they're not gonna feel like they wanna throw someone under the bus. So if you do your homework, then you should be in a better position to, to really be able to advocate for the adoption that you wanna make and line it up so that it rolls out successfully. The second guest on today's podcast is Kelly Palm, the Chief Learning Officer at Degreed. Kelly has a tremendous career in learning and development so far, working with companies like Sun Microsystems, Yahoo, and LinkedIn in senior leadership in learning and development and the latest as the CLO of Degree. She is on a mission to change the way the world learns. She's a workplace futurist, a world-renowned speaker, innovator, practitioner, and the co-author of the book The Expertise Economy. Kelly starts by an insightful explanation of the term workplace futurist, which is what she likes to call us it. Absolutely. So I, I think when, you know, you, you have a phrase like workplace futurist, it's really a, a, a forcing function in a way to say, look, there, the world of work is changing. That's, that means that the way we think about learning has to change as well. And I think that a lot of companies and a lot of learning organizations have a way to do things. They, they have a way that they design and develop learning. They have a way that they're delivering learning online and in person to their employees. And, and I don't think people always want to, to change or to think about to, or to really think about dra dramatic change in terms of what's going to happen in the future. So this idea of a workplace futurist, and you're right, I think all leaders need to think about what's happening in the future. The people who are preparing now for the future are those that are going to be most successful. And it's hard to think out too far in the future, but even thinking two or three years out and saying, look, the way we're doing things is not is not really working. What does the future workplace look like in two or three years? And how does that mean we have to change as a result of that? So we talk a lot about what skills are going to be needed in the future. How is technology impacting? I mean, because we're seeing today technology that's impacting the world of work and learning, but think a few years ahead to the to the technology that's going to be coming. We have to be ahead of what's what's coming at us and not be complacent and just work with the tools that we've had. We've got to prepare. And because if you don't prepare, and we talk about this in the book, if you don't prepare and think about the future, it sneaks up on you and then you realize that you are not in a great competitive advantage for your company and that you're falling behind in terms of innovation. And so it's imperative that we think about how to prepare for the future. And that's, that's the whole idea behind a workplace futurist is one to think about all the things that are happening in the future, but also to help push others to think about what's happening in the future and to get ready for that. I'm not sure that a lot of people are taking over the title, but I would say that some of the most forward thinking companies are doing exactly what I just described. They're thinking ahead to prepare their companies for what's coming next so that their companies can be successful. And that is, you know, how can we think about what skills our employees need two or three years down the line as automation and digitization and acceleration are, are those trends that are happening in the workplace that, that are, are impacting us in such dramatic ways. So those learning leaders that are, that are thinking about those 
workplace trends that are thinking about how they can help their companies be successful. I, I see that happening more and more. And especially in the last three, three years where, you know, you can't open a newspaper or, or a post on LinkedIn or, or any online content that's not talking about how companies are thinking about upskilling and reskilling the workforce. It's, it's on top, the top of mind for business leaders and also for L&D people. And so we're all trying to figure out how to best approach this. And so I'd say a lot of, a lot of people, although they might not have the title workplace futurist, they are in spirit, you know, thinking about the future and preparing for it. When asked how businesses can practically adopt and execute upskilling and reskilling to drive digital adoption, she gave some very interesting advice backed by examples. I'll tell you that what, how most people are, how, the, how some of the smartest companies are approaching upskilling and reskilling the workforce has to do with really focusing on skills. And that is really asking these basic questions. One is, do the employees at my company have the skills that they need to be to help the company win in the future? So, for example, we talk about Booz Allen Hamilton and the fact that they realized that a lot of their employees were gonna need skills in data analytics. And they didn't have the people with those skills, enough people with those skills today, let alone when they look two or three years out. This is what I mean about looking into the future and preparing for the future. So they actually put an initiative in place called Data Science 5K, where they are helping mm -hmm. to upskill and reskill up to a quarter of their workforce over the next two to three years. And so they're using Degreed as a technology to help them do that. They're also partnering with General Assembly for some of the in-person hands-on learning because I want people to understand that, you know, there's, there's a difference between just getting knowledge and then actually being able to, to do something with, with the knowledge that you gain. And so when companies talk about that as a strategy, you know, there are two parts to that. It's like, how do you get the knowledge about, for example, data analytics, but then how do you get the, the learning so that you can actually apply those skills on the job? And that's really the, the key. And, and, and so being able to measure what skills people have when they start and then being able to re and to say, okay, in, in 2019, we had, you know, a thousand people with data analytics skills, but after this program, we now have 2000 people with data analytics skills at these levels. And to be able to actually quantify that by having a baseline saying, these are the skills our people have, these are the skills our people need. And now we can actually show you when we've actually got people with the skills that, that we need to be successful moving forward. I think that's the basic idea of how people are approaching the upskilling and reskilling strategies. I think the other part is, is that you've really got to help employees with guidance around what skills are going to be most critical for your company moving forward. We saw an announcement recently that Amazon is now <clears throat> spending $700 million on upskilling and reskilling their workforce. They haven't talked a lot about the, the ways in which they're going to do it, but they know the automation is impacting their, their company and their employees in big ways. So they want to help their employees that are not going to have jobs anymore 
because of automation, get new skills so that they can work in other parts of Amazon. And Amazon has even said this, that they're, they're also in some cases going to help people get skills so that they can get jobs outside of Amazon. So, so that's kind of the idea around an upskilling and reskilling strategy. A company I'm working very closely with is Unilever and, and their CLO, Tim Munden. And Unilever has actually put together a pretty impressive upskilling and reskilling strategy for their company and actually identifying the skills that employees will need to be successful moving forward at the company level, but also at the functional level. So here's the skills if you're in marketing at Unilever that you're going to need to focus on. And if you're in finance or if you're in IT, these are the skills that are in most demand and that we're going to need you to think about. But in addition to the company giving guidance about what skills are going to be needed in the future, I think some of these forward-looking companies are also empowering their employees to say, look, we're going to give you guidance, but you should also think about your own career aspirations and understand, for example, if you know, if you're if your goal in the future is to become a product manager, what are the skills that product managers need most to be successful in the future? And to come up with your own skill plan for what skills you're going to need in order to fulfill your career aspirations. So it's kind of a two-pronged approach where the company's giving guidance for what they're going to need for their company, but they're also empowering their employees to learn the skills that are most valuable for their careers moving forward. And and those two pieces converge at, at some point, which I think is a, a really great strategy. She then goes on to talk about how to deal with the friction involved in getting these plans streamlined. This is a very important topic as not every individual believes that continuous upskilling and reskilling is required in a company. Let's get to know Kelly's take on this. If you look at the old model of learning, it has been very much command and control. There's a central organization that tells you exactly what you need to learn, when you need to learn it. And employees, in some cases, were used to that, but we haven't been very successful with that kind of model. So I think moving forward, this idea that that we're all in it together, that companies can, can empower employees and give them guidance. But employees need to actually take some more ownership over their learning and what skills they want to build. And then what you have at the end is this, this learning culture. So this is where it comes down to you need to create a learning culture at your company where managers are encouraging employees to learn all the time, every day as part of their job. But employees also feel like they're empowered to, to learn some of the things that they're really passionate about and that help move their career forward so that they're motivated to actually want to learn some of these things. So I think that that's part of the key to success when you think about employees wanting to learn new things. Now, your part of your question is, is what do you do about those employees who don't necessarily feel motivated or want to learn new skills? I think the reality is, is that, that the, the workforce of the future is is not going to be as tolerant around people who don't have those skills. I think those people are going to find out that their skills are becoming obsolete and that they can't compete in the marketplace moving forward. So I think getting that message out and saying, look, it's in your best interest for you to keep up on your skills all the time so that one, so that you can help your company, but two, so you can help yourself in your careers and not have your skills become so obsolete, you, you won't have a job anymore. So I think those are the two messages out there. Thank you all for listening. 
Stay tuned as we bring you fresh perspectives and episodes filled with insightful conversations every week on the Digital Adoption Show. We are thrilled to announce that our podcast is now live on multiple platforms, including YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and much more. We greatly appreciate your support and encourage you to leave a review, comment, or a rating to help us continue delivering valuable content. If you have any questions on the topic, feel free to ask in the comment section below.